Bible with you, I invite you to turn with me to uh, Romans, Romans chapter 5. We're going to start reading with verse 6 and then read down into chapter 6, down to verse 11. I was thinking earlier, there's been a number of people who have felt a bit of an increase in spiritual attack, spiritual warfare. Uh, you know, and, and the way you know that, one of the biggest ways, the biggest things that the enemy often does is bring up our past. Bring up issues from the past. He loves to do that. Oh, I spilled water on myself. He loves to do that, and we should expect it. Uh, and I, I love, there's a great song by Carmen, uh, that great theologian of the faith, uh, many, many years ago. Uh, Carmen just got married. You probably don't even know. If you've not been around Christianity for a long time, you wouldn't even know Carmen. But in one of his songs many, many years ago, he said, you know, when the devil reminds you of your past, just remind him of his future. I love that. So that's great. Uh, but, uh, but uh, you know, we shouldn't be surprised because, you know, what have we been talking about in Sunday Focus the last four weeks? Spiritual warfare. Uh, so if your spiritual warfare is increasing, uh, don't think that there's something wrong with you. That's kind of foolish. Don't think there's something wrong with you. Just think that God is training you to get victory and then press on till you get the victory. Um, don't back down, don't quit. Um, you know, as long as you don't move, Satan can't move you. Uh, and that's what we're talking about today. So uh, it's not too late if you want to join in uh, on this series. Today I'll be talking about standing firm in your faith and probably overcoming. We'll see how far we get. And then uh, I've got a new teaching that I'm doing probably two weeks' time on contending how to contend over issues in your life, and how to contend for others, uh, not only people, but organizations that you're a part of. Uh, so we'll be focusing on that uh, probably in two weeks, because I'm thinking that Wayne will do some teaching next Sunday. Anyway, so all of that has nothing to do with the sermon today. Um, so we're going to pick up with verse 11. For a while, no, excuse me, verse 6, down to six eleven. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. 
Yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by, as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. May God bless to us this reading from his holy word. I'll do something a little unusual today and then I'm going to use some notes because the topic today is so big that if I don't use notes, we'll be here till three o'clock. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure you want to, want to do that. So uh, uh, pardon me just for a second. Take my little throat lozenger out. Do you ever notice that people, when they get feeling poorly, they always give you a play-by-play? You know, I'm going to blow my nose now. I'm a, yeah, so, sorry, sorry. Apologies for that. Uh, anyway, you know, one of the things that happens when uh, you make a transition into a, a new country, as we did, uh, well, I guess, 16 and a half years ago now. It's been a long time. You know, I've been ministering in England longer than I ministered in the United States. So... Uh, so that's kind of cool. Well, longer than professionally that I ministered in the United States. 
Uh, I haven't been preaching longer. But anyway, that's... that's, uh, But one of the things I I had struggles wrapping my head around was marriage. Because the understanding of marriage, the way people talked about marriage uh, when I got here, uh, was so foreign to me that ironically, it was very difficult for me to get it. Uh, The whole idea that, that people would talk about their spouse as their partner as opposed to their husband or wife. And, and it almost seemed like, you know, that I was insulting Karen by calling her my wife or something like that. Uh, it was really kind of a strange thing. Uh, and I really scratched my head. And even now, uh, 16 years later, as you know, so many things have changed about marriage in the United Kingdom that it's, sometimes it's very difficult to understand and certainly very difficult to reconcile with the Bible uh, and uh, uh, with, with history in that. So I thought I'd look into it a little bit, uh, and I did, and I, and I began to understand uh, some of the differences. You know, for example, until 500 AD, apparently, uh, the United England didn't really practice marriage. And even then, it started to practice marriage in a largely pagan context, primarily uh, as a strategy, you know. So, okay, I'll give you uh, my daughter to marry your son so that we can farm our land together. Uh, Or I'll give you my son to marry uh, your daughter uh, so that we won't have a war, you know, because we'll both be in-laws and we'll have grandchildren together and that kind of thing. And it really wasn't until about 1200 that, uh, uh, that marriage became the religious institution that we got to know uh, here in England. Uh, even in Scotland, you know, uh, up until after 1200, uh, they practiced what's called common law marriage. Now, common law marriage is not just, you know, where two people move in together, have sex, and one day wake up and say, well, I guess we're married. Uh, common law marriage was where pe- two people agreed to be together in a marriage, even though there was no recognition for what they were doing, other than the fact that they were going to be together and have kids. And that was prevalent in Scotland even until after 1200 when things started changing here. And when I began to see that, I began to understand because in the United States, it's quite different. And part of the reason it's quite different in the United States is not because the U.S. is superior in any way. It's because the U.S. is younger. You know, so by the time the United States becomes the United States in 1789, when we get the Constitution, 1776, it's a day that all, you know, British people love, uh, the day the revolution started, uh, you know, July 4th, uh, that, that kind of thing. Uh, by the time we get, you know, in, into that time, the religious concept of, of marriage was rather fixed, And the understanding, even though I'm painting with broad strokes here, there was a lot of diversity within the colonies and the like. There was a religious underpinning uh, to marriage. And uh, and it often reflected more closely a biblical pattern. And I even remember this when Karen and I got married. There were certain things. Now, marriage in the States has changed a lot, too, since I've been here. I go back to the States and I think, well, you know, what country am I in? Uh, this is certainly not the country I left. Uh, and, uh, but it's changed a lot too. But, for example, when Karen and I got married, when you were married in the United States, the man took on every liability the woman had. So when Karen and I got married, she had some school debt still, and her debt was my debt. And in fact... 
by marrying her, even if she would die, I would have still responsibility for her debt because we were now married. So if, for example, uh, she would have had kids and we got married, her children would effectively have been my children and I would take on the care and the nurture and the raising of those children. Now, obviously, some things have gotten messy with divorce and all of that, but that was the expectation. Those kinds of things would happen. And at the same time, even though this has changed, when the woman married the man, the woman then receives everything that the man had. The woman would receive, you know, when, I, when we got married, all of a sudden, as soon as Karen and I got married, if I die, she gets my pension. You know, if I die, she automatically gets my bank accounts. Uh, if I die, she gets every good thing that I might have had to bring in. And of course, you know, if, if I've got a good name, she takes on my name. You know, it's Mrs. Rodney Woods, although don't tell her that because she, you know, she doesn't really like that. But uh, uh, she likes being Mrs. Rodney Woods. Don't get me wrong. But, uh, you know, the, the title, you know, she's like, oh, I'm Karen. Uh, there's a long story in that. But she got every blessing. The woman would get every blessing that the man had. The man would take on every liability, would not necessarily get all the resources, but certainly would get every, every liability. And the other thing that would happen most of the time when we got married is that the woman also took on the man's name. Now, now you got hyphens and, and all of that stuff. Uh, and I'm not saying that's bad if you've got a hyphenated name. Uh, I'm just saying it's, it's different now. But when we got married, Karen took on my name. She's no longer Ballard. She's now Woods. And she became identified fully with me in a transformative way. Immediately, when we got married, she could change. Uh, she changed her social security. She changed her driving license. She changed her passport. All of those things were changed. Her fundamental identity was shifted, and she was brought into the reality of my family. And so marriage in the U.S., at least when we got married, and historically, although again, it's changed quite a bit and much more similar to the way it is here, uh, the union of husband and wife was both legal and transformative. It was legal and organic. There was, uh, there was legal and intimate. So there was this twofold reality, and you could never separate the twofold reality. You can't separate the legal reality from the, the organic reality, and you can't separate the transformative organic reality from the legal reality. Uh, in, in the context of the marriage. That's how it happened, and that's how it functioned. Now, why this is important is because if you don't have that kind of understanding of marriage, which is much more in line with the biblical understanding of marriage, by the way, then it's very difficult to understand what union with Christ is all about. That's why Paul, in, in, in chapter 5 of, of Ephesians, He's talking about husbands, you know, loving your wife and wives respecting your husbands. Uh, and he says, husbands, love your wife. Christ loved the church. And he says, the man will leave his father. Uh, uh, the woman will leave her father and mother and be united to the man. And the two will become one flesh. And he says, this is a mystery, a profound mystery, but it refers to Christ and the church. 
And so if you don't really understand that kind of foundation for marriage, it's very difficult then to understand what it means to be one with Christ, united with Christ. But it's essential for us to understand this. Otherwise, we cannot understand our salvation. Because scripturally, and even historically, salvation was not understood as come to Jesus, get your get out of jail, don't go to hell free card. Uh, you know, get that. And then you don't have to worry about it anymore. You just kind of live your life. Uh, and that's great, you know, and God's out there and Jesus is out there somewhere. Uh, and you'll connect with them occasionally. Uh, that was never the concept. The idea that you certainly could just you know, pray a simple prayer, have your sins forgiven, and then go on living your life, that is a foreign mindset in the history of Christianity, even though it's very big today. And the reason that has become such a foreign mindset is that we have separated the legal and the transformative reality of this union with Christ. We've separated these two things. So, for many people, when you think of a concept like justification, which I'm going to talk about today, big word, I'll give you a definition in a moment. When you start to think about a concept like justification, you think of it as a legal concept. So Jesus died on the cross, he paid in his blood, so now I stand before God, the judge, And Jesus, my advocate, comes and he says, "Uh, Hey, Dad, you can forgive this guy because here's the price that I paid and now you can release him and he can just go on and get out of jail. You know, he doesn't have to pay the the price because I paid the price for him. And that's a legal concept and it's true that that dynamic happens in one sense and that we legally are forgiven and declared righteous because of what Jesus Christ did. But that is not how Jesus stands before his Father. Jesus stands before his Father on our behalf, saying, Dad, this is my bride, and I have taken her to myself, united her with me, so I have, as my bride, taken all of her debt taking everything that she's done, taking every liability she's brought into this relationship, I take it on myself, and she is united with me, and you know, Dad, you and I have a perfect relationship with one another, and now because she is my bride, fully united with me, she also shares in that relationship. And that's the reality of our salvation, and that's the reality of our union with Christ Jesus. And if we lose that, we don't know what salvation is all about in any way, shape, or form. I told you I'd I'd give you justification, and and this is really true when it comes to this idea of justification, which I want to talk about today, which Paul talked about in the passage we wrote. And I want to give you two little definitions, actually from the history, uh, because I like to go back a little bit to John Calvin in the 1600s. Uh, 1500, excuse me. He wrote this. But we define justification, that's the big word, Paul uses it here, as follows. The sinner received in commun- into communion with Christ, that's union with Jesus, 
is reconciled to God by his grace, while cleansed by Christ's blood, he obtains, and that's he and she, obtains forgiveness of sins and clothed with Christ's righteousness as if it were his own, he stands confident before the heavenly judgment seat. As a simpler definition, Therefore, we explain justification simply as the acceptance with which God receives us into his favor as righteous men and women. And we say that it consists in the remission of sins and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. It's a great gift from God to us. And we want to celebrate that, but it's a gift that only comes in union with Christ Jesus. And that's what Paul is talking about. Now, I'm not going to go through this passage verse by verse. That would take us uh, an awful lot of time. But I want to give you four observations that will help you to make sense of this passage. So if you take these four observations, go back in and restudy the passage, you'll pick up on all these things. Observation number one, we have been justified in our union with Christ because of God's extravagant love for us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what Paul is talking about. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is extravagantly, that's, that's extravagant love. God loved us with this everlasting love, so he wanted to have fellowship with us. He wanted to have connection with us. He created us for that connection, and he loved us extravagantly. And God then, even though we've sinned, God takes the initiative. You don't ever take the initiative, but God takes the initiative. And because God takes the initiative, Paul tells us in this passage that we are saved. We have salvation. We have wholeness. That we are actually reconciled to God. That our relationship with God is restored so we can stand boldly before Him. And that even now we can rejoice in God, in Jesus. You know, part of the reason that we've been created is so that we can rejoice in our Creator. I love the Westminster Shorter Catechism written in the 1600s. Uh, first question, what is humanity's chief end, chief purpose, Chief reason for being. Humanity's chief end is to... Oh, come on, uh, Simon. <laughs> Enjoy God and... No, no, there's something else. Now, you know, that's embarrassing because it's on the tape now. Oh, not the tape. I mean, show my age. But it's on there, you know. Uh, man's chief end is to... Love God and enjoy Him forever. Thank you very much, Raya. I knew Raya would come up with it. You know, he's, he's the man. He's the man. Uh, boy, I tell you, it's, it's, you get a brain freeze like that every now and then. That's why, admit it, that's why most of you raised your hands earlier that you're afraid to speak in public. That's why you're afraid. But let me tell you, embarrassment only lasts for a moment. And, and then you get to laugh at it. So it's great. You know, it's fun. Uh, so, that, you know, that's our purpose is actually to enjoy God. God wants us to enjoy him, and now, because of his extravagant love, we can enjoy him in our union with Jesus Christ. But then, if God loves us extravagantly, why in the world would Jesus have to die? Why, you know, couldn't God just zap us, restore us to relationship, and so on? 
Well, we need this justification. We need this place where we're declared righteous before God and clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We need this. We need this place where our sins are forgiven because of sin and death in our lives. Sin and death reign in our lives. As Paul shows us here, sin comes through Adam. And you know, Adam and Eve in the garden, Nathan brilliantly talked us through that last week. You got Adam's camp, you got Jesus' camp, and we all messed up and started stepping into Adam's camp there. I love what he said, don't go fishing in Adam's camp. That's a brilliant thing. I'm going to remember that for weeks and weeks. Uh, but sin came through Adam. So Adam's sin corrupted our humanity. God created us in an uncorrupted way, corruptible but uncorrupted, and Adam's sin corrupted our humanity. Adam's sin also, in, in our humanity, we also all willfully participate in Adam's sin. So Adam's sin corrupted humanity, but we all, as human beings, commit, willfully participate in Adam's sin. And because of that, death has, came in, has come into the world through sin. Spiritual death primarily has come into this world because of sin, because of, uh, death is the consequence of trespass. Now when Paul uses this word trespass, he's not talking about the sin that we you know, just commit and we don't even know that we've committed it. Trespass is where we willfully engage in doing something that we know we shouldn't be doing. When you go against your conscience, and when you went against your conscience as a little child doing something wrong, you were trespassing. And you were sinning. And because death is the consequence of sin, once we sin, death then reigns over us because of this. And so we've got the power of sin and the power of death in our world, and so we need to be justified. Now sometimes people say, well, you know, that's not quite fair. You know, Adam sinned, we don't know exactly when that was, but we know it was a long time ago. He sinned, you know, why are we all blamed with that? And I'd like to give you a couple of illustrations. Uh, One is pollution. How many of you know that London is polluted, right? I love London, by the way. You know, I love getting out and smelling the fresh diesel fumes in the morning. Uh, in our house, you know, there's nothing quite like it. But we're all affected by pollution in London. Uh, We have troubles breathing. Uh, They say that a lot of people actually die uh, because of pollution around the world, not just in London, because of pollution. But we are all affected by that pollution, right? Now let me ask you this question. How many of you have contributed to pollution in London? Uh, every single person here should be raising your hand. Because if you take a bus, you're contributing to pollution. If you ride in a taxi, you're contributing to pollution. If you take a train, you're contributing to pollution. Uh, if you are riding your bicycle, you say, well, you know, I'm riding my bicycle. I don't do any of that other stuff. You contribute to pollution. Because what is happening when they're building that nice little cycle superhighway for you to ride your bike on? I don't know if you've ever driven past one of those trucks that has the asphalt in it, but it's polluting. If you flush the toilet, you're contributing to pollution. If you, if you use, uh, use food, you, everybody's just going, you're contributing to pollution. You're doing it, and you're doing it willfully. 
So you can't blame somebody out there for the pollution in London because you are responsible for the pollution in London, even though you were not the first person to pollute in London. Does that make sense? And then Paul talks about uh, the law, you know, and he says, you know, the law came in uh, so that, you know, to really make sin apparent. And, and, you know, where there's no law, you can't count sin. And that confuses a lot of people. But let me give you another pollution-related example. And this is with plastic. Now, <clears throat> plastic, since it was invented, and since the first time it was thrown away, has contributed to pollution, right? And we've all used plastic. There's probably not a single person here that hasn't used plastic at some point in time in our lives. Even if you've used shampoo, your shampoo was, uh, had microbeads in it, you know, little beads of plastic to help it function better. Now, for many years, we did not understand how severely plastic was polluting the environment. Is that right? I mean, I didn't know that until recently, probably 10 years ago, that I really became aware of it. We've always tried to recycle and things like that. But, you know, I didn't know it was polluting the environment. But you know what? Even though I didn't know it was polluting the environment, I'm still guilty of polluting the environment. Right? But now that we know that plastic pollutes the environment, we are even more guilty of polluting the environment now that we know it does even if we pollute the environment less with our plastic. So now, since you know that water bottle, that plastic water bottle, okay, people have plastic water bottles here. Uh, let, let me, uh, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, you could do, I could do a lot of things. I don't want to pick on anybody though. But now that you know that that pollutes, you have choices. Now that you know your coffee cup pollutes the environment, you've got choices. You can bring a coffee cup. You can buy a permanent water bottle. You can reuse your water bottle. Now, I've seen, you know, those that have had water bottles here, they've been well used. So, you know, not, not the best with anybody. But does that make sense? So we need justification because we are all guilty. We've been polluted because of the environment we're in, but we're all guilty of polluting the environment that we're in. And that's why we need to be justified. Because without union with Christ that leads to our justification, we cannot overcome the pollution of sin and death. But once we're united with Christ, we can't overcome the pollution of sin with death. And we have justification, the, the third observation here, we have justification in our union with Jesus because of what Jesus has done for us. You see, we've, we've been affected by the pollution of sin and death, and we've been guilty of polluting and contributing to sin and death. But because we're in the middle of it, we can't get ourselves out of it. Now, if you have a computer, and it's not, not this, quite the same way, but it used to be, if you had a computer and the computer got a virus, you couldn't use a program on the virus-infected computer to get the computer free of the virus. What did you have to do? You had to bring in an uncorruptible 
antivirus program from the outside that normally was used by one of those, you know, CD-ROMs. I mean, many of you are old enough to remember those. Uh, Normally, you put the CD-ROM in there. It could not be corrupted because you couldn't write onto the CD-ROM, and the incorruptible CD antiviral program could clean up the computer and remove the virus. The same is true for what Jesus Christ has done Because we're all polluted by sin and death, and we're polluting with sin and death, we needed Jesus to come in who was incorruptible. And so what did Jesus do for us? First of all, he assumed our full human nature in the incarnation. He became fully like one of us. He united himself to all of humanity in his humanity. But as he lived his life, he lived his life fully as we do, but he didn't sin. So in other words, he came in uncorrupted by the pollution and he chose not to be corrupted by the pollution so he remained uncorrupted and uncorruptible. And so he identified himself fully with us. And then Jesus went to the cross and he took our sin on the cross as if it was we ourselves who were dying on the cross. So when Jesus hung there on that cross 2,000 years ago, he was bearing the sin of every human being that ever lived on that cross. Because he lived his life as one of us so he could come as our representative and he could be united to us. And he was able to bear all the sin of the world on that cross in that moment because not only was he fully God and fully united to our humanity except without sin, but also he was, uh, not only was he fully human and fully united to our humanity yet without sin, he was also fully God. And as fully God, he could bear the price there for us on the cross and he paid it willingly. He paid it there Uh, for us in order to be united to us and to give us away. Now, all of this happened by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. There was not a single thing that we did where we could deserve it. There was not a single thing that we did to earn it. And there would never be anything that we could do to deserve it or to earn it. But he did it because of his grace out of his extravagant love. So now, even though sin reigned in death, grace reigns through righteousness. Grace has a power in our lives to help us to walk in righteousness. Did you know that? Grace itself is power, and it has a power to accomplish that which God purposed it for. And so grace reigns in us because we've been made righteous in Jesus Christ and because grace reigns in us that leads us to eternal life through Jesus Christ our our Lord. And so when we turn to Jesus by God's grace through faith, what happens to us is that we are united with Jesus. And that union is not only a legal union, whereby we are declared legally righteous, that union is also a transformative, organic union where we are literally united with Christ in a way that we don't fully understand, a way we don't fully perceive. That's why it's called a mystery in the Scriptures. But we are united with Christ legally and transformatively. So we receive, fourth fourth observation, we receive justification in our union with Jesus by grace through faith. 
as we turn to him, as we respond to him. And so when we come to Jesus, by God's grace, through faith that God gives to us to enable us to come to Jesus, we are literally united with Jesus in this legal and transformative way. We are literally part of the bride of Christ that is married to Jesus and becomes one with Jesus. And even though that union is not fully consummated, the day will come when it will be because we've been betrothed to Jesus as the bride of Christ. We have that union with Jesus right now. And because of that union with Jesus... Jesus takes on all of our liabilities. He takes on all of our sin. He takes on all of our pollution. He takes that all on himself in the cross. And as we are united with Jesus, we take on every benefit that belongs to Jesus Christ in the fullness of his humanity. We don't become God, but we have the divine life of God through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We have a union with God so that every benefit that belongs to Jesus now by law and by organic union belongs to us. Every single benefit. That means that Jesus is righteous, so now we are righteous. And that righteousness, that justification, that declaration that our sins are forgiven, the pollution is washed away, and we are clothed with Christ and receive his benefit, that declaration for us comes fully and freely through our union with Jesus Christ. So this is a very real union, vital, intimate, organic. It has legal and transformative impact to us. And we're united with Jesus in the fullness of his humanity that is now incorruptible. Paul tells us we're baptized with him into death. We were buried with him. We were raised with Christ by God's glory to walk in newness of life. Our old self was crucified with Christ so that we are no longer slaves to sin. And if we have died with Christ, the promise is that we will also live with Christ. And this is what Paul is telling us. And every one of these things we have, by God's grace, through faith, that brings us into a full union with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in that union, we are saved. So because we have been justified, as God united us with His Son, Jesus Christ, death no longer has dominion over us. You don't have to be afraid of death because we know that death is not the end. We have an e eternal, everlasting life that is with us right now. It is the life of Jesus. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the power that is living in us. And that's the promise of God. And furthermore, the power of sin is broken over us. Yeah, you'll sin. But you don't have to. And it's grace in your life, not God's judgment, but the grace of God in your life that will lead you to turn away from sin and turn fully to God. When you really understand how fully you're united with Jesus, you don't want to wallow in the, in, in the pit of sin. When you really understand that Jesus had brought you, in, in Nathan's words from last week, into his camp, into his home, into his place, a place of life and joy and peace and victory over sin, why would you ever want to walk back into Adam's camp 
a place of filth and stench and pollution. And you don't have to do that. And we live our lives to God in Christ Jesus. All of these things come to us. Jesus, the Son of God, fully united himself to us in our humanity so that we would be fully united with him in his divine life. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, if you have been saved by grace through faith. You have that union with Christ. And so in the words of Paul, let's consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is yours because of God's grace and his favor. If you've never received it from him, he's offering it to you today. You just respond in prayer and say, Jesus, I want to be fully united with you. I believe you died on the cross and you rose from the dead for me. Come and lead my life and by the power of your spirit, connect me with you eternally so that you take on all my sin and every liability that I have and I receive from you the life that is yours. And you can pray that prayer or a prayer like it and God will respond to you and unite you with his son Jesus. If you've already been walking with Jesus like most of us for probably much of our lives, it's time to remember your union with Jesus. There is never a time in your life when you are not with Jesus and Jesus is not with you because you are united fully to him. The power of death is broken. The power of sin is broken. You're no longer a slave to sin. Grace reigns in your life through righteousness. And you are united with Christ to continue Christ's work in this world. Father God, thank you so much for this promise, for this reality, for something we know and experience. We honor you and we praise you. And I pray, Father God, that you'd help us to walk in that union with you. Help us to live in it every day. Thank you for justifying us, for declaring us forgiven and set free from sin and also for clothing us with the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus, thank you for uniting yourself to us fully as an act of your extravagant love. We honor you and we surrender to you fully and freely. Amen. Amen.